Second and third, one out in the second and didn't score. Smith corks one into right down the line. It may go. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. It's a home run, and the Cardinals have won the game. Welcome to the score. Here's your host, Brett Wiseman. Welcome to yet another edition of The Score here on Tobacco Road Sports Radio, TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. Brett Wiseman joined this morning by Alex Wober. Christian Emery will join us later on in the program. And Maria Ormond, head coach of the Carolina Phoenix and the Women's Football Alliance tackle football team here in High Point in the triad, joining us later on in the program to tell us all about that fine franchise out there in High Point. But first, Alex... Before we recap last week in the NFL, you as a Seattle Seahawks fan, you have some gripe with the uh, with the boys in in Electric Green uh, from the other night and their uh, disappointing loss to the Los Angeles Rams. Brett, I mean, it is it's it's tough to be a Seattle Seahawks fan right now. It it really is because we're. You know, we're just not used to this atmosphere of losing. You know, we haven't had a losing season uh, since Seattle went seven and nine, but they still went to the playoffs that year. Um, so it, it's it's definitely weird and uh, not a comfortable feeling to have right now when your team's two and three in arguably the best division in football. You said best division in football, and that's one hundred percent right. Because, I mean, look at um, the 49ers. They're not terrible. They're not good either. Uh, but, I mean, you look at the Rams, the statements that they've made, and, and then how about the Arizona Cardinals? I mean, yeah. they beat the Rams on the road um, last Sunday, uh, and now they go into a, a showdown with the 49ers. I mean, they're the class of that division at that at this point, I think, and they've got – Weapons to burn. Kyler Murray's the favorite right now to win the MVP. Yeah, and and I I said this when Kyler got drafted and when they brought in Kingsbury. I thought that that team was going to be uh, trouble for the NFC West down the road. And and now we're seeing that team really come out of their shell. They added some incredible pieces this offseason. I mean, there are a lot of veterans, but They've got young players in the secondary. They brought in J.J. Watt. Chandler Jones is still there. They got A.J. Green. Their receivers are stacked, super talented. So uh, the Cardinals, yeah, they're they're an up-and-coming team for sure. And when when you look at the the NFC West, the AFC West almost has a leg up on it. And I've seen people not necessarily freaking out over Justin Herbert, but – 
I, for one, am freaking out about it because, especially when I've seen what I've seen from him the past two weeks in, in two big games on two of the biggest stages he has been on. Um, look, his footwork, his poise in the pocket, his arm strength, his accuracy, all the tools that are there to be an elite quarterback in this league, he has. And in my mind, there are not enough people that are recognizing the talent that this kid has on a team in Los Angeles that is most certainly second fiddle to the Rams. I mean, there are more Raiders fans at SoFi last Monday night than there were Chargers fans. And Chargers got booed coming out of the tunnel because there were that many fans, Raiders fans, that you know were left over from Oakland and that made the way up from Vegas. So if there's anybody that can lead a team like that that's that's playing second fiddle in the city of angels it's a guy with not only the talent level but you know the the personality to be a franchise quarterback i want to point something out because with the like how justin herbert erupted on the scene last year as a rookie and then how we're seeing the rookies play this season how to me that's how impressive justin herbert is how he came into this league on a Chargers team, like you said, they don't have the biggest fan base. I always thought their move to L.A. was a mistake from San Diego, but that's another story for another day. Justin Herbert, like I agree 100% what he said. I think that team can go far. That division, both West divisions are incredibly competitive now. I don't know where the Raiders came from, but it, it's it's really awesome to watch. Yeah, that's nobody has any idea where the Raiders came from. They came out of nowhere. Seriously, after that, after that overtime win against Baltimore, that's after that game, they have looked sharp. I mean, yeah, they did. They did lose uh, to the Chargers and they went to overtime with the Dolphins, I believe. But uh, they're still a good team. And as well as the, the Broncos, I mean, they, they did get they've been in some headlines with the Ravens this week, uh, but. The Broncos uh, still look sharp. Their defense is really good. Yeah, let's talk about the Broncos for a second. They um, they finally played a real opponent. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah absolutely. They played the Baltimore Ravens, and I'm not going to say they got exposed, but they got humbled. Uh, Vic Fangio and company did. Teddy Bridgewater struggled mightily against a, a, a really, really good Baltimore defense, and Baltimore certainly improved on a lot of the issues they had in the game prior to against Detroit. But the thing I want to get to with that is, is what happened at the end of the game with the Ravens going for, for that rushing record that they were chasing the entire game. It went down to the last play of the game, so they went for it, and instead of taking a knee, Broncos and Vic Fangio were livid about the the, the quote-unquote breaking of an unwritten rule. Um, but personally, I don't have a problem with it. They were going for a record. And I, I, just like in baseball, I think we're we're almost past the point of of breaking unwritten rules that you know we're we're past the point of the where we should be caring as much about it as we do. Yeah, I, I'm really I'm t- that. From Vangio, that that statement it, it kind of just gets under my skin because, like you said, with baseball, all this all all this unwritten rule talk, like it's, 
it's it's unwritten for a reason. It's not a real rule. It's just because you got your feelings hurt. Vic Fangio, you were also trying to score a touchdown with like a minute or like 50 seconds left, 40 seconds. I don't think there's a 16-point touchdown is what John Harbaugh said. So I, I don't really see the problem as well. I think going for a record like that, I mean, you got to keep that, that streak going. Yeah, I mean – you can't sit here and tell me that Vic Fangio wouldn't have done the same thing if he was going for a rushing record. Exactly. He's only PO'd because his team was getting waxed and, you know, put on blast for, you know, being, let's call it like it is, frauds. Uh, <laughs> uh, Carolina Panthers. It's a lot to get to with that, uh, with the Dallas Cowboys. A game that I feel like Panthers fans... We'll get to the other storylines with them. They've made a lot this week. We'll get to that in a second. But there are a lot of things that happened in that game that Panthers fans can look to and mark off as, you know, missed opportunities. Agreed. Agreed. I think... When you go back and look at that game against Dallas, Dallas is a really good football team. Let's not write off the Cowboys. No, the Cowboys are a really good football team, and and we forget that. But I mean, you look at who they've played the first three weeks. It's you know, uh, a fortune they came out of it two and one, and then they go into a team, a three and zero Panthers team that everybody said, okay, this is the best team they've played yet. And in reality, if the best team not named the Saints, yeah, probably was, but the Saints have also gone downhill really fast, but they went into Dallas, they played a really good team, and they got outplayed. I mean, there's no other way to put it. 100%, Brett, and I think something Panther fans can look forward to was their defense did not play well against Dallas, and like you said, what we were about to get to in a few seconds, the Stephon Gilmore trade. That's something they can look forward to now. Their defense just got a whole lot better. And, uh, I mean, they're going to have to step up on defense, step up on offense, too, because they didn't really score that many points against Dallas either. No, they didn't. And, and as much as we, you know, Sam Darnold running the football as well as he did on Sunday impressed the hell out of me. I mean – what he did, not only in outside the pocket on scramble action, but a lot of the designed runs, he had two rushing touchdowns. He was their best rusher. It wasn't Chuba Hubbard. Who needs Christian McCaffrey when you have Sam Darnold out there running around? I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but it shows that there, there's an extra wrinkle to that offense. The only problem was the defense just couldn't get stops, and... As a result, they go out and get Stefan Gilmore this week. It was a great move by Carolina. I mean, the Rock Hill, South Carolina, I believe. I mean, I saw this guy play in college at South Carolina uh, when I was a little guy. So an, an, an area native, for sure. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, when I woke up that morning, you know, I immediately grabbed my cell phone and, you know, tweeted at Pete Carroll three times and at Seattle three times. And Yeah, and then you tweeted at me and, we, and you <laughs> said that Devontae Adams said, call me, but he was actually kidding. And then you said, oh, you sent me some tweet that said, there was a source that said Stefan Gilmore wanted to go to the Packers. And I was like, oh, yep, yep, we're going to get him. Yep. Not even an hour later, 
<laughs> he's going to Carolina. But the thing for me, and we'll get to the the more with the Patriots in a second. It's so odd for me that the Patriots, a, a player, if there had to be some kind of a falling out, and it wasn't just reaching a deal or not reaching a deal. There had to be, in my mind, there had to be something more than that for you to be okay with giving up the 2019 Defensive Player of the Year and and an all-world quarterback in Stephon Gilmore for nothing and then kind of be swooed or wooed at the last minute, swayed, so to speak, by Carolina with a six-round pick so where you were okay with giving him up for nothing and then you end up only giving him up for next to nothing. Still, it's not like you, you got anything back for him. You were more than willing to just let him walk in the middle of the season. And, and something that I, I think we must point out is the Carolina Panthers, like you said, they got him for a six-round pick. Imagine just Scott Fitterer was so quick to the bell to get Stephon Gilmore because you had to think that other teams were going to be interested in picking up Stephon Gilmore, such as Seattle, because they have the 32nd overall defense in the league. Such as Green Bay, because exactly. Jair Alexander is going to be on the shelf for at least a few weeks. Their Najee Harris decided to run over his shoulder. And then they just sweep him up just like that. Like It was so quick. Like I mean, he said he wanted to be in on every deal. And, you know, he has been. The C.J. Anderson deal. Too. I mean, I mean, good. Let's talk about this for a second. Look at this secondary. The secondary is a cheat code right now. You've got Anderson and Gilmore on both sides of it. And when you look at you know this week going against Philadelphia, um, yeah, you've only got one major receiver to cover. But next week against Minnesota, and we'll ask Christian about this next week because a Vikings fan get the opponent's perspective on it. I mean, when you have to cover Thielen and Jefferson, you've got a two-headed monster out there, but you've got two two legit top 10 quarters in the league. C.J. Anderson might not be there yet, but he's a first-round pick, and he's a really, really good TP. So if you're the Panthers, you can pick and choose who covers who and mix things up a little bit. And let's talk about... They also have A.J. Boye, who's a seasoned veteran. You know, he's pretty good. He's had a few good seasons with uh, Houston and then went to Jacksonville. It didn't really work out. Then he ended up in Denver uh, for a little bit. Now he's with Carolina. Uh, they also, let's not forget, J.C. Horn, when he comes back next season, most likely, that secondary is going to be even more deadly. They, st- and they also have Dante Jackson, who's, to me, been a, a consistent cornerback for the Carolina Panthers. And don't forget, you've got Shannon and Zach Thompson up front and in the middle. So, and I can't also. Did you say Jeremy Chin as well? Yep, Jeremy Chin. Yep, that's another one. I mean, that, that defense is super young. I mean, Gilmore's the oldest one, might be the oldest one on that defense. They're young, they're fast, and it's not like Stefan Gilmore's over the hill or anything. I mean, he's right. He's going to make an impact certainly. Um. Let's talk about this Brady, uh, Bucks, Patriots return, whatnot. Yeah, it was overblown, maybe. No, it wasn't. Um, 
it was everything pre-game that we expected it to be, and then everything during the game that I think we expected the reaction from the fans to be, but we knew Tom Brady would perform there, and he did, but a lot, a lot, a lot of credit has to go to Mac Jones, has to go to that New England defense for making it as close of a game as they did, and Mac Jones holding his own in a torrential downpour, I might add, um, and getting them as close to field goal range as possible. I have an issue with the decision to kick it at that point in a torrential downpour from 56 yards out, but what happened happened, But and I give a world of credit to Mac Jones. Tom Brady's going to get the credit. He did. That's implied. Okay, he's Tom Brady. He did what he had to do to get his team the win. Mac Jones showed a tremendous amount of grit, a tremendous amount of gumption. That defense, Matthew Judon, played out of his mind. Um, on both sides of the football, for them to even have a chance in this game against the, for a team that's really thought of right now as, as a rebuilding process by a lot of people, to compete as well as they did in that game says a lot about Mac Jones's mentality and just the way Bill Belichick coaches to get to get a team like that that young and then an experience ready to face a veteran laden squad and to perform offensively in you know inclement weather conditions as well as they did against a, a top three defense. Well, one thing for me is coming into that game, you kind of knew Tom Brady couldn't lose. He kind of had to win that game because the headlines, the media would have gone absolutely crazy. But if the Patriots would have pulled that one out, Mac Jones, I think the headlines would have been even crazier because Mac Jones would have been looked at as some sort of second coming of Tom Brady. But, you know, it didn't ended up not going through the uprights, so Patriots did lose, but they still did look good uh, against the reigning Super Bowl champions. So, I mean, maybe our uh, eyes on the Patriots for the next couple weeks because they might be uh, putting stuff together and become a decent team. It, it, it's there. The talent is there. The mindset is there. But as we said, they're, they're still in the process of of semi-rebuilding. Let's right. talk about Buffalo for a second. Buffalo, after that week one loss to the Steelers, who have been exposed as their issues have been exploited, and then some, as they were by the Packers again last Sunday, uh, the Bills, 45 nothing win against the Texans at home last week. Uh, they're outscoring opponents 118 Excuse me. What eighteen to twenty-one since their loss in Week One to the Steelers? They have only given up three touchdowns total in three weeks. Two of those were in one game. I mean, Brett, they they look like I, I wouldn't. I don't know if I would go as far as saying they're the best team right now because they have not played really that many top-tier opponents. They got a top-tier opponent coming up this week. So we will see if they are the number one team, but they're definitely up there. That their offense 
I remember last year when they lost in the playoffs, Stephon Diggs was standing out on the field watching them celebrate. They're coming back for vengeance this year. Buffalo is looking to break some more tables, and they're looking to go to the Super Bowl. They're out for vengeance. They're out for this blood. is not a mindset that we have seen or a confidence in this franchise that we have seen since the 1990s, period. Oh, yeah. to, to have... Like you said, to have guys like Stefan Diggs over there, that a guy that, again, has playoff experience with Minnesota. He was almost solely responsible, aside from throwing the football, for the Minneapolis Miracle. So, a guy like that that fell short that year, there's not only guys on that roster that are talented enough and want to win, but guys like that, guys like Micah Hyde, who came from Green Bay, um... And fell short a couple times with them. There are guys that have also... There's not just guys that want to win like everybody else. There's guys like those two and others that come from Cole Beasley. Coming from uh, the Cowboys. Falling short there in the postseason a few times. I mean, there's guys that have come from elsewhere that have come to Buffalo and have come there because they think they can win there and they want to win there. They didn't come there just because it was the only place. And in Micah Hyde's case, he's been there for a few years, but he stayed there because he sees the potential of that ball club. You, you also have Emmanuel Sanders, too, in their receiving core. That, that's another right. name. That, I mean, they, they're bringing in this people with this experience, and they've, they've been deep into the playoffs. They, they obviously, you know, they, they want to get to the big game, but, you know, they've got a big matchup coming up this weekend against – a really good team. They have started out a little slow, but this is going to be a big test for Buffalo. And if they have been playing like they have been playing, then they might be a tough bunch for Kansas City. Yeah, let, let's segue into that real quick because that's the Sunday nighter. That's the game of the weekend, obviously. Allen v. Mahomes. And the Chiefs have, I mean, let's let's tell it like it is. The Chiefs have struggled thus far and you think it's a test for Buffalo it's almost uh, twice as much of a test for the Chiefs as they've almost got to prove themselves at this point yeah I think this is a really good Sunday night matchup uh, between two teams who have kind of I don't know if you could say bad blood but they've they've got this little bit of a postseason rivalry maybe because you know they're always going to see each other in the playoffs possibly and um these are two really good quarterbacks who can sling the ball deep so one thing i'm hoping to see is tyree kill who's on my fantasy team get like another 30 point game uh i also expect to see just a shootout i I don't expect this to be a defensive game at all uh after seeing kansas city's defense these first couple weeks so yeah, and it, it's it's going to be fun. Two tremendous defenses, two equally tremendous offenses. It's it's good. It's going to be fun. Um, it's good. the The matchup speaks for itself. We could sit here and uh, and dissect it all day, but again, it speaks for itself. Um, let's talk about Green Bay for a second. They. Took care of business against the Steelers. Um, it's a game they think I think they knew they should have won, and they did. Um, 
But go into a game this weekend against Joe Burrow and the Bengals. I hear people saying trap game. I feel like that's, even as a fan of Green Bay, that's a little disrespectful to, to, to the Bengals who sit here at 3-1. and one, And they're riding high. They got a top five defense in the league. They got a, a top 10 offense right now in multiple categories in the league. It, would it be an upset? Yeah, probably. But it's not in, in the sense of a, or in the context of a trap game. It doesn't fit that because this is a game I feel like Cincinnati if you look at it from their perspective, it's it, of course you go into every game thinking you're going to win, but Cincinnati thinks they're on par with Green Bay right now, and they're probably right. They're a weird team because I think a lot of their their wins so far, they were really close. Minnesota was extremely close. I, I think Minnesota should have been the winner in that game, but should have, would have, could have. They also barely squeaked by the Jaguars on was that Thursday night football? Yes, that was Thursday night football. And that was just I, I thought Jaguars had that in the bag, but I mean that's here nor there. Uh so yeah, I mean I think Green but is it in Green is it at Lambo? It's at Cincinnati. At Cincinnati. So that that's what makes it even, you know what puts the trap game wording into it. Yeah. And even more. But again that's a bit disrespectful to the Bengals and what they've accomplished thus far, because even even you talk about even with their schedule, a, a lot of people didn't feel like they would be at, at three and one. If anything, it was you know two and two would be the max for them so far. And that division's been uh, really good. They have started out really well. Uh, the Browns still. Uh, look pretty strong, and the Ravens after the, they beat the Chiefs, they they also look like a really strong team. The only team that's out of the out of the uh, the outlier there is uh, <laughs> Pittsburgh, who do not look good at all. But uh, yeah, Bengals, I think it's a little bit disrespectful to consider it a trap game for Cincinnati because I think it's going to be a pretty tight game, uh, considering it is in Cincinnati. Absolutely, one hundred percent agree with you there. We got to get in the break here. When we come back. Uh, we'll dive into the world of college football. A lot to unpack there as well here on The Score. Back here on The Score and Brent Wise, but on Tobacco Road Sports Radio, TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. Brent Wiseman alongside Alex Wilbur, Christian Emery joining us later in the program. Alex, there was a record set last week in college football. Nine, count them, nine AP top 25 teams lost on Saturday. And I don't know if that's as much to say as college football has a lot of parity this year, or is it to say the AP poll is not the poll we should be looking at, which I've been saying for the longest time. Um... It, it shows you just how flawed the voting is in the AP poll. I know a lot of people that vote in it um, in this industry. I know a lot of people have different formulas for how they vote on it, but what's what's happening right now is the way the polls are shaken out, it's not indicative of where these teams should be when you see as much you know, turnover 
as we've seen, you know, this year and, and especially this past Saturday. I have I couldn't agree more about the AP twenty five hole. It it's kind of it it becomes a joke sometimes when I, when I look at it. I, I I say to myself, really this this is the rankings that we're posting for college football. Are we like some of the sometimes uh, it's laughable, uh, like how long Clemson was ranked after that loss to Georgia and uh, what was it Georgia Tech? I think. Uh, I could not agree more with you, Brett, though. Yeah, I, I, I don't mean to jump uh, ship here, but I cannot wait till they expand the college football playoffs because we're really going to see who's worth uh, the money in that one. Thank you. We finally have a playoff expander truther, so to speak, on the show. Finally. Thank God. <laughs> I've been saying this for... God, I don't know how long. It's like me in the in the wild card format, and it's not just because the Cardinals lost. I think I don't think a 162 game season should come down to one game, but we'll get to that when we talk about baseball. Anyways, um, yeah. Once the playoff gets expanded, whether it's to eight to twelve to sixteen to sixty four, whatever it is, I mean, realistically, it's probably going to be eight, but that's still better. There are too many good teams in college football to, to put them in, you know, a consolation prize bowl game. Um, let's talk about the, uh, the the playoff, though. As far as this year, there's two teams that might have taken uh, some pretty big hits to their playoff chances on Saturday. One team gained from, uh, from that. We'll get to that game in a second. Um, Stanford... Came out of nowhere and beat Oregon Saturday in Palo Alto in overtime. Took advantage of a, a, a pass interference penalty on the last play of regulation. Got a touchdown on an untimed down. And uh, got the touchdown in overtime and then got the stop on fourth down to get... Uh, the victory over Oregon, a, a marquee win for them, uh, a, a team that not a whole lot of people really looked at. But now as a result, Stanford, yeah, great win for them, but they might have just nuked their conference's chances at a playoff team because Oregon loses to them, uh, a team that, you know, when the playoff committee is going to look at the metrics of okay, was that a loss we could excuse? It's not going to be one because Stanford's not going to have the same strength as other people. 100%. 100%. And did, did you feel bad about that? No. Stanford got the win. They, they pulled off the upset. Great for them. Great for their fans. Yada, yada, so far and so forth. But they might have nuked the playoff chances for their conference. I mean, did, did we really think Oregon was going to stay this hot? I mean, we've, we haven't really, in the past few years for college football, we really haven't seen a team like Oregon make it all the way to the playoffs. So, to me, it, you know, it was fun to watch them be undefeated, but it really wasn't realistic for me that they were going to go all the way to the college football playoffs because it's just how – it just doesn't happen. It, it rarely happens. We rarely see a team like that. Uh, get a three or a four seed. They won't get a one or a two seed, but rarely do we see a team like Oregon make the college football playoffs. 
very rarely do we a see a <clears throat> excuse me a Pac-12 team make it or or a team like Oregon. One hundred percent. You're 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 right. And when you look at Cincinnati, when you look at somebody had to make a statement in that game, right? It, it, Notre Dame had to step up and prove that they were for real and could beat a really, really good team by Cincinnati on their home field. And Cincinnati had to make a statement that they were for real, not only to the group of five as to be the representative in the New Year's Six Bowl, but make an even larger statement by going and beating a top 10 team on the road and then saying, no, we're not just a group of five. We're getting to a New Year's Six Bowl. No, we're coming for the whole darn thing. And they did that. And they've got a really impressive quarterback uh, at Cincinnati. And I I personally didn't think Notre Dame – I haven't thought Notre Dame has been legit in a really long time. So I usually try to be cautious when I'm uh, judging a Notre Dame squad. But Cincinnati has been really impressive so far. And uh, they do look like they want the whole thing. I think they have a chance to get a four or a three seed in the college football playoffs, but they got to just keep up and they got to keep winning these football games. They got to keep it up. They can't not afford to slip in conference play in the American Conference. There's still some really competitive teams in that conference. You've got Houston still, you've got UCF, you've got Memphis. Um, there's a lot of competitive teams in that conference that, that you still have to go through. So you, you can't let off the gas pedal. But a statement was made by the Cincinnati Bearcats in that game and carry that with them going forward into conference play. Kentucky, they shocked Florida thanks to a kick six, a blocked field goal. And then they ran back for a touchdown. Um... Florida takes a hit from that one, but uh, first time Kentucky defeats Florida at home since the Reagan administration, since 1986. Also, fun fact on Notre Dame, uh, first time in 28 consecutive home games, they have taken a loss on their home field, so uh, doubly huge accomplishment there for for the Cincy Bearcats. Uh, Wake Forest, as we switch over to our area here. Wake Forest able to come out on top over Louisville. Game-winning field goal by Nick Skibo with 22 seconds left, and then they were able to uh, thwart the uh, multilateral attempt from from Louisville. Uh, there's only two undefeated teams, or excuse me, there's only one now left because Boston College lost to Clemson. There's only one undefeated team left in the ACC, and that's the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. And if you live in this area and have not been paying attention, if you're a Carolina fan, if you're a Duke fan, if you're a State fan, ECU, App, whoever, start paying attention to Wake Forest. They're 19th of the country right now. They're 5-0. and They're the only undefeated team left in the ACC. It's not Clemson. It's not Carolina. It's Wake Forest. Start paying attention because Dave Clawson has a group that can make a lot of noise. I'll tell you what, I've been watching Wake Forest closely these past few weeks, um, and I hammered them uh, against Virginia. And a lot of people I listened to on TV that night were saying they were really high on Virginia, and they were really disrespecting Wake Forest. And I thought Wake Forest has been heavily uh, swept under the rug. I think they're a team on the come up. That program is doing a really good job 
uh, especially this year in the ACC. They're taking advantage uh, of that conference. Taking advantage of an ACC that is, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly not as strong as it has been in the past. I mean, that let, let's call that what it is. I mean, when you look at how Clemson has played, when you look at how Florida State has fallen off uh, the cliff, so to speak, Wake Forest being the class of the ACC, not at all what we thought, but it's what we got. And we might very well could see a, a Wake Forest NC State or a Wake Forest Georgia Tech ACC championship game, which is not something that anybody thought was a possibility in August. We look ahead now uh, to the rest of the schedule this weekend. Oh, wait, one more thing. Uh, almost forgot about this. The Georgia-Arkansas showdown that we told you about last week that was going to be really good, it wasn't even a game, okay? Arkansas went between the hedges. Georgia decided to take them out from between them, behind the hedges, to the woodshed, and spank them. Uh, Georgia's defense proved everything we already knew about them. Arkansas's offense proved, you know, things that we suspected we knew that they might not be able to compete against a defense like that, but anyways. Uh, Lane Kiffin's popcorn comment fell on deaf ears. Ole Miss loses by three touchdowns. Ole Miss and Arkansas play each other this week as we move ahead to this week, but that's not the game of the week. There's two games that we'll tell you about, um, we'll tell you about what's going on around the ACC first. Uh, Virginia Tech hosting Notre Dame. Chance for the Hokies to make another statement at Lane Stadium. Uh, they've already got the win over UNC there. Uh, Georgia Tech on the road at Duke. Going to be a good test for uh, the Blue Devils, a Georgia Tech team that uh, could make some noise in that coastal division. Uh, Florida State and uh, Chapel Hill Saturday afternoon as well. But um, the Red River rivalry renewed full capacity at the Cotton Bowl at the Texas State Fair, Spencer Rattler, Oklahoma, against the Longhorns. You want to talk about having some fun at noon? We're going to have some fun. That game is uh, smells a little fishy to me, though. How so? I like Texas in this Oh, I do. Ooh. Spencer Rattler has scared me this year. Especially, I know it was... And I, I know Oklahoma was my pick to make the national championship game, and I, I might have to end up eating that at some point. Oklahoma's only a field goal favorite in this game. So, you could certainly take Texas at the very least to cover. Oh, absolutely. And they're not they're not a bad team. This I mean, they have been... I think they've been... They've been the a little bit up and down, but they've been on the cusp. Absolutely, absolutely. They're not back to the Vince Young days, of course, but uh, they did. There was a developing story this uh, these last few days about Arch Manning possibly go committing to Texas, so that would be huge for that program. Uh, but yeah, uh, Texas, Oklahoma. I actually do like Texas. Uh, I think it's going to be an interesting match, and it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a showdown. Uh, Red River shootout, showdown, Red River rivalry, whatever you want to call it. 
it's back at full capacity. As good as it was, a good a game as it was last year, I think it's going to be even better uh, this year, especially with um, as it was limited capacity last year. <clears throat> excuse me, a uh, a full capacity game this year at the Texas State Fair at the Cotton Bowl. The game that everyone's going to be talking about and should be talking about, third-ranked Iowa, fourth-ranked uh, Penn State, a showdown in the Big Ten, and this becomes a... Okay, not which one of these two teams is better. This is a which one of these two teams is more apt to take on Ohio State than anything else. Well, I'll tell you what. And I may just be going against the, you know, the favorites. Well, I guess Iowa is the favorite in this matchup. I thought Penn State would be. But uh, I took Iowa last week against Maryland, and they were only like a three-point favorite against Maryland, and they ended up blowing Maryland out. Uh, Iowa, I think, could end up being the real deal. Uh, this is going to be a true test for them to see if they'll possibly make the college football playoffs. Uh, but they have looked sharp. I mean, they really have looked good. And that, that school has always been uh, not on the cusp of, like, top 10, but they've always been in somewhere in the top 25. They're tight end university, if you haven't noticed that in the last few years with the NFL tight ends. But um, Penn State's also capable of winning this game. They have a really good coach, uh, and they have uh, a different uh, offense. But – one thing I do want to point out is it is in Iowa. It is it is in Iowa City. And yeah. you and I both know how much that environment plays to a home field advantage. One of the best home field advantages, well, underrated home field advantages, I would say, in college football. And to have the kind of game that they're having there uh, mid-afternoon kickoff there uh, in Iowa City. You've got the Kinnick wave coming. I mean, it, it almost... I, I almost run out of words because my, one of my favorite levels of college football, I guess you could call it levels, Big Ten football is... A lot, a lot of fun. And especially for those of us that don't live in that area, that just kind of watch from afar like we do here, ACC football is as good as it gets, okay? We know that. SEC football is as good as it gets. We know that. But if you don't at least enjoy watching the environments of Big Ten football, um, you, you, you're doing it wrong. Couldn't agree more, Brett. Couldn't agree more. This game, uh, I it's probably going to be the best game this weekend, and I'm going to go ahead and say it is going to be the best game this weekend because I think I, I don't I don't think there's any debate on that. I mean, you've got a couple other games to keep an eye on. I mean, you've got the Auburn game. Auburn beat LSU last week. They're going into to uh, Georgia between the hedges, but can't sit here and tell me that the Iowa Penn State game is not the game. It's 3v4. Okay, it's a top five game. Yeah. Take that for what it's worth. No matter what the APP, AP poll, you know, says about teams. I don't even think that the Georgia game is going to be 
anywhere close. I think Georgia's going to absolutely blow Auburn out of the water. Oh, yeah, it's not going to be a contest. Yeah, after they just whooped Arkansas, I don't think it's it's any question. Uh, that actually, that, Speaking of Arkansas, that game might be good. Yeah, the, the Arkansas Ole Miss game, two teams coming off, you know, pretty heavy losses. I mean, yeah, it's going to be... Uh, Somebody's got to win. Some, something's got to give there. Uh, when we come back, both of us are painful baseball fans, or baseball fans in pain. Uh, we'll tell you why, and uh, why if you're not in this area and a Braves fan, you might want to become one as the postseason gets underway. It's October. It's the best month of the year. We'll talk about the postseason next. Back here on the score with Brett Wiseman on Tobacco Road Sports Radio, TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. Brett Wiseman joined by Alex Wober and Christian Emery this morning. Christian is the only one of the three of us that as a baseball fan is not in deep emotional pain and a pit of depression. Alex, your team narrowly missed the playoffs by a game. Mine, thanks to a 17-game win streak in the month of September, got into it and went 0-for-11 with runners in scoring position in a tie game that continuously stayed tied, and the opportunities were there, as I said, 0-for-11 with runners in scoring position. The opportunities were there to pull off the upset against the Dodgers, and then you bring in Alex Reyes, who all of us Cardinal fans knew the minute he walked out of the bullpen, the game was probably over. He hangs a cement mixer slider to Chris Taylor, who launches it into oblivion and sends Chavez Ravine into pandemonium. And if I'm lying, I'm dying. My dad threw the remote, literally threw it at the television Granted, this is like a, a pretty large-scale television, so I'm glad he, you missed. But threw it under the television. I dropped to the floor and didn't move for like a solid five minutes because so many opportunities were there. Adam Wainwright, at 40 years old, mind you, pitched his tail off. And it's it's not like Mike Schultz said after the game, it's a oh, one-pitch decided the game. No. There were 11 pitches, or then some, that decided the game that the Cardinals did not come through. The pitching did its job up until the ninth inning. The Cardinals did not come through offensively when it mattered. You go 0 for 11 in runners, with runners in scoring position, you don't deserve to win a game in April when you do that, let alone a wild card game. I digress. Christian, your Boston Red Sox in a dream, I mean a dream, wild card game matchup. It does not get better than Yankees Red Sox in a one game winner take all playoff postseason game. Uh, mind you, I, th- I think the stat you gave me the other night was that was the most watched Major League Baseball broadcast on ESPN since 1998, I think you said. Yeah, 1998, when this, if I remember the numbers correctly, I don't have it right beside me, but I think it drew either 7.7 or 7.8 million viewers. I'm going to assume that was at some point during the home run chase. That was a Cardinals-Cubs game. I'm going to assume, uh, but I digress. Um, unfortunately, we had to have A-Rod sit there and, and, and talk during it, but um, look, I've made no bones about how I feel about him as the color guy. 
And Matt Vasquez is a great play-by-play guy. He's apparently not coming back next year to Sunday Night Baseball, so we'll see who gets that. But, I mean, just the first inning alone, the Bogarts home run, seeing Fenway as rocking as it was, and then he had the Schwarber home run. Um, both Yankee home runs in that game were very much Fenway home runs. Uh, but none of those, neither of those Boston home runs were the plays of the game. The play of the game was, was it the fourth or fifth inning? The relay. Stanton looked like he had another one that was a home run off the green mo- over the green monster. Ended up going off the green monster. It could not have been played any better in center field by Hernandez off the wall. Threw it to Bogarts, who I, I mean, threw a laser from short center field to home plate. And Aaron Judge probably should have gotten the stop sign, but didn't. Got waved by his third base coach. And Aaron Judge is not slew foot, okay? He's fleet of foot. He plays right field. Um, Just a perfectly executed relay to get the play of the game and keep it, at that time, a 3-0 game. Yeah, I mean... That first of all, I want to. I just want to point out how hysterical it was when the uh, the camera crew thought it was going to be a home run and gave Yankees fans hope. And then, Matt Vasgersian thought it was going to be a home run. Poor John Sterling, who's about 117 years old, actually called it a home run and then literally said on the radio, "Wait, what did I miss? What did I see wrong?" Yeah, it yeah hit off the top of the green monster. Well, I mean that's not. I mean, I, I, I'm telling you, I was watching it at a restaurant. I, I saw it, and my first words were, uh-oh. It wasn't like an uh-oh, like I thought it was you know, going to be one of those that scrapes over the monster. I thought he was hitting that off the damn sit-go sign, okay? But no, yeah, I mean, it was just a really loud, long line drive that hit off a 32-foot wall. Yeah, that's about right. I mean, I, when I saw it, I thought it was gone, too. I was like, oh, here comes the rally. Here we go again. But sure enough, it like you said, it uh, hit off the wall, and well, the relay, as you mentioned, is what what the result of it was. Which that's why the game, because if the Yankees score right there, um, that was uh, after the Gallo or the was it the Rizzo the Rizzo home run it was after the Rizzo home run, so it was three to one. If if they score right there, it's the three two game. It completely changes the 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 complexity of complexion, I should say, of that, not only that inning, but but the game. I mean, then the pressure's on the Red Sox. To, it, there's even more pressure on them to get insurance, which they did from uh, from Verdugo, but I mean, talk about him, how clutch he was. A couple of really big hits for him, and um, he's been good all year for, for the Red Sox, but Garrett Cole and Nate Evaldi, we thought we were going to have a really good pitching matchup. Uh, Garrett Cole did not show up. And to get paid as much money as he does to do that and in, in, in what you pay him all that money for to win you a big game like that, I, I don't know. You know, is, is it that he didn't have spider tack? Is that he wasn't on the Astros? I don't know. But throw out the conspiracy theories. Um, Kyle Schwarber is on run. When Garrett Cole is right, that fastball that's up above the zone, basically at Kyle Schwarber's eyes, you don't even make contact on it because the rising action is too good. 
when he throws it up there and it's flat and you can see the spin on it, and Kyle Schwarber hit it about 450 feet. I mean, when Garrett Cole is right, nobody's touching that. But Garrett Cole was not right and therefore got lit up. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, there was something about him during like the middle, about the middle innings from about the fourth to the seventh that just seemed off for him. I mean, and then of course, when Boston takes three, nothing lead, the pressure gets to him. He's playing for the Yankees, yada, yada, yada. Um, No pun intended because you're a Cardinals fan, Brett, but um, he just, I just think he, I don't know. He just seemed off for something. I don't know if it was the fact that before the game, when he was warming up in the bullpen, there were Red Sox fans like just absolutely going after him, saying that every pitch he threw was a ball. I don't know if they had gotten inside of it, inside of his head or anything, but I mean, just something really seemed off. Like, like you said, you pay him all that money, you expect him to at least keep the game close. But I mean, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened to the guy. But I mean, I mean, from my perspective, I don't mind because obviously Red Sox won. But I think you get where I'm going. Yeah, I, I certainly get where you're headed with this because um, in, in your situation, you had to think, here we go again. There had to be a here we go again kind of thing. And when Nate Evaldi goes out there and pitches like he does to give you an opportunity and Xander Bogarts gets that home run right off the bat, not going to say you feel confident, but I mean, you certainly, you, you at least feel good. Oh Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, I think my mindset of it was, okay, here are the, it's the Red Sox and the Yankees. Something's going to happen. I don't know what it, I don't know what it is, whether it's going to be a big play, whether it's going to be. There's, there's going to be a moment and exactly. in, in a rivalry full of moments, you knew there was, there, there's going to be a defining moment. It ended up being the relay. Yeah, exactly. And then you had the whole, there was just part of me was thinking, okay, Yes, we're yes. The Sox are up three nothing, but this is the Yankees. This is the postseason. And then the relay happened, and I was like, "Okay, well, maybe, maybe we're starting starting to." Uh, I started to feel a little more confident as the innings went on, and then obviously when the game was over. But and you have the and then you had uh, what am I trying to say here? You had um, it just. When it's the Yankees, you can never fully feel like the game is over until it's over. Right. And especially when you're a Red Sox fan and you have the bullpen struggles that uh, they have this year. Um, yeah. Look at it that way. Uh, they did lose game one of the division series to the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, Randy Arozarena, again, returning to form as Randy Octoberania. Uh, hit a home run that went about 500 feet um, and then decided to become the first Major League Baseball player since 1955 when Jackie Robinson did it to straight steal home in a postseason game. Yeah, not exactly the best moment for the Red Sox. Not ideal for you, but... (laughs) Or me as, you know, we continue to sit here and be like, oh, wait, we had him. We had this guy. And traded him for a bag of potato chips. Yeah, I mean, and he's doing out and doing this. Yeah, I mean, I part of me saw the. I didn't see this. I certainly didn't see see the uh, the steal homecoming. But overall, the result of the game, I was like, 
okay, we, we put all of this energy into focusing on beating the Yankees. We're probably going to come out flat against Tampa, and sure enough. And that's that's what the wild card game does. I mean, it, it takes a lot out of you because you go into that as a, okay, one game we're playing for a life, and then you come out flat with the mindset that, okay, we're down 1-0, but still, you know, we got a chance. It's a best of five. We, we got more games. Exactly. And you have um, – who, who was pitching yesterday? I think – I think it was Eduardo Rodriguez on the mound yesterday. Could yeah, I mean, and then you got Chris Sale exactly. coming back here in game two. So yeah, exactly. You you feel like you're you're set up to win that one and have it one one going back uh, going back to Fenway. Let's exactly. go back to, go back to the NL for a second. Giants Dodgers uh, Dodgers won 106 games. Their prize was a one game playoff because that's how the format is. I've said how I feel about it a lot of the time. You win that many games and a, a season this long should not come down to one game, period. This is not football. Um, should be at least a best of three, but what do I know? I'm not Rob Manfred. I don't know anything about baseball. Okay, very clearly I know much more about baseball than Rob Manfred ever will, but um, that is beside the point. The Dodgers and Giants, 107 wins versus 106 wins. In my mind, as upset as I am, that the Cardinals lost that game. I'm okay with the fact that it ends up being Dodgers-Giants because it's almost meant to be. The two best teams in the NL all year, granted they're only meeting in the division series, not the LCS, which in a normal perfect world would have happened. Um, But the two best teams all year meet in a postseason series, and, you know, it's almost meant to be. It's almost fate. Yeah, I mean, you have the, you, like you said, you had the two, probably the two best teams in the NL, no doubt, and they could probably make two, probably they would have ran away with the NL, or sorry, the AL, and if you look at the uh, the records between the two, they played 19 times. The one game that the Giants finished ahead of the uh, Dodgers in their division was the tiebreaker in the series. They played 19 times. The Dodgers went nine and 10. The Giants went 10 and nine against the, against each other. So it literally came down to one game in the season series that decided the entire, well, it's what got us this matchup pretty much. Yeah. I mean, going toe to toe all year. And, and, and we've talked about it time and time again, a team and a roster like the Giants, to do what they did, it's astonishing. It's so unexpected, but they did it. We got to move on from that. They got to perform now in the playoffs. And if anything, that as I said, the Dodgers are more built for this kind of a scenario, a short series, because even if it gets to a fifth game, they could throw Max Scherzer back out there. Which is part of the reason I think Dave Roberts pulled them as early in the wildcard game as he did was to save him in case they won, knowing he had such a strong bullpen. Um, that's where the Dodgers really have the advantage in this series, I think, is bullpen. But two best teams in the NL all year, no doubt about it. The Braves and the Brewers have been really, really good. They won their divisions. Um, there are a lot of Braves fans in this area. We're going to cater to them, um, <laughs> as we should. But in my mind, having watched this division all year, being a fan of the Cardinals, the Milwaukee Brewers 
are the favorite in this series, and I'm, I'm I'm not ashamed to say that. As much as I would love for the Braves to win this series and move on, um, without a Ronald Acuna Jr. in the lineup in a postseason in a short series like this, a best of five, you look you look up and down both lineups. There are more guys in that Brewer lineup that can hurt you than there are in the Atlanta lineup. And I say that with all due respect to the guys they brought in, like Duvall. Uh, they've basically remade their outfield, Duvall and Jock Peterson. Uh, Jock Peterson has postseason experience with the Dodgers. Um, but look, the other thing is, outside of Max Freed and Charlie Morton, who do the Braves have in that rotation that could go out and win you a super important game because the Brewers have four guys in a series in which you only have to win three games. If the Brewers, even if it's a split in the first two, Milwaukee still has to feel confident. If you're Atlanta, you've got to win the first two. Period. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to agree with you on that. If when you have the pitching staff that Milwaukee does – and you only got you have to win three out of the four, and you can still rest one of your starters. Then it's just it's going to be hard for Atlanta to have to go pitcher one, two, three, and four into right. um, like just having to play their best uh, their best hitting game. Or you've hit got Burns, game. you've got Woodruff, you've got Peralta. Those three right there alone, outside of the other two, could sweep you a series. No, no doubt because about it. So, as yeah. much as good as Max Fried and Charlie Morton have been, <clears throat> when you put any of those three guys up against those two, giving the edge to the Milwaukee guy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I don't know, just you have the yeah, and then you have. I mean, Milwaukee. Granted, they won what they won the Central by what four or five games? Is that right? That is correct. Okay, I mean, and then you have it, and then you kind of got to go through like the the roads that the teams have been on. It, I mean, uh, the AL East. Wow, I'm thinking of sorry, I'm thinking of the Red Sox. My bad, my apologies. Um, the NL East, where the Braves play, that division is kind of not as I don't want to say not as difficult, but it, it's it's a division title nonetheless. But you still. The competition in the in El Centro, I feel, was more was more challenging, just because the Brewers at they had just had better overall teams in that division, which I think bodes well for them, just because they had to go through that. In they had to go through <clears throat> two teams of the wild card hunt, whereas the Braves, for the most part of the season, only had to deal with. The Phillies and then the Mets kind of just teetered in and out of contention. The Cardinals and the Reds, despite the Cardinals being not necessarily out of it, but all hope was lost kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, the Cardinals and Reds still were, were two teams that were in that wild card hunt for a lot of the time. And remember, uh, the Braves led the NL East for most of the year. The Phillies just kind of hung around in the wild card. So there's that. Um, AL Astros White Sox started off well for the Astros. Not so well for the White Sox. One starter named Lance showed up. The other starter named Lance did not. Lance McCullers Jr. went seven innings to shut out baseball. Uh, Lance Lynn got lit up. Um, 
in game one. <clears throat> Granted, it's Houston, so it's a hitter's park. Um, when you go back to Chicago, I think you feel better about the White Sox, but they got to win game two. I mean, just think about the division series. If you don't at least split, you're in deep doo-doo going forward because you're down 2-0 at a best three out of five. So you got to win three in a row at that point. Which yeah. you as a Red Sox fan would know something about, but... Yeah, ironically, it was against the Yankees that we did that, but I digress. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I just think you have to. I, can, I mean, you can kind of see just how young. I mean, granted, Chicago is talented, but compared to Houston, who feels like they've been in the World Series every other year at this point, the, oh, for the last couple of years anyway. Um, but they they know what to do. They know what where they're what they're what. They know what they have to do. They know what to expect. They know the pressure to face. And it's just, and then Chicago, on the other hand, you could argue that they don't really have any expectation. They don't really have expectations. Nobody's really giving them, or well, not a lot of people are picking them to advance uh, past. I don't even know how many people are predicting to beat the Astros. So you, they could play the mindset of that the Red Sox had no four. Of course, as I go back to that, um, White Sox up. Padres was my World Series pick at the at, back in April, and I would like at least half of that to be right. But <clears throat> look, the Astros have the experience outside of the cheating, of course, uh, but they've been there before. They have a, a manager in Dusty Baker that has certainly been there before as well uh, with the Cubs and the Giants, um, both. So, yeah, I mean they they have the experience over a, you know, even though the, the White Sox have Tony La Russa at the helm, um, the, the roster certainly matches up better for Houston and the fact that they have had um, the more, the, the uh, bulk of the postseason experience among those two teams. Uh, let's get some predictions here before we move on to hockey. All right. Um, where do you, where do you want to start? Yeah, let's start in the NL. And are we just going until what are we? Um, yep, who, who who we got going to the LCS? Okay. Um, let's see, Brewers. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Milwaukee taking on. Oh, uh, this is hard. Um, Milwaukee taking on Atlanta. <sighs> yeah. No, I'm, no, I'm picking Milwaukee. Oh, here. okay, okay, yeah, Milwaukee and oh, Dodgers, Giants. Yeah, yeah, this will be tough. I just, uh, why do I make this choice? You know what? I'm gonna go Brewers, Giants in the AL in the sorry AL NLCS. I agree, Brewers, Giants. Uh, both those series do go five games, though. I think uh, they go the full five. Brewers Giants will be your NLCS. ALCS, I'm going to go with the White Sox to come back because I picked them originally to win the World Series. I'm not backing on that now. Uh, White Sox, Red Sox. We get Sox, Sox in the LCS um, is what I'm going to pick in the AL. Yeah, I'm going to go... Uh, okay, uh, this these two series are actually hard to pick. I'm going to go... This is me putting my bias here, but I'm going to go Boston taking on uh, Boston taking on 
You know what? Let's do it. Let's do it. I'll, I'll say I'll say we have a battle of red versus white and go uh, red socks, white socks. Socks, socks. We agree on that pick. <laughs> so we agree on both our picks, something that J-Dub and I would not have done if he was on the show because <laughs> uh, we never agree on anything. When we come back, though, guess what time of year it is? It's time to drop the puck. Let's talk about hockey next. Back here on the score of Brett Wiseman on Tobacco Road Sports Radio, TobaccoRoadSportsRadio.com. Brett Wiseman alongside Christian Emery. Christian, hockey's back. It's it's great. I, that in the ending to last season feels like it was wasn't that long ago. I mean, it really wasn't that it long really ago. It really wasn't. It was a month later than it normally would have been. So Yeah. So I mean I'm I'm ready for it. I'm ready to see. I'm ready for Seattle to make their debut. I'm ready for just all sorts of things that have transpired during the offseason, and I'm ready to see what happens. Ready for Seattle to make their debut. Ready for ESPN to make their return to hockey. Ready for TNT to make their official debut of the NHL. Two new media rights deals. Um, the, this, the, we've talked about it before. We're, we're going to be a dead horse. We talk about it on here again, but... The ways that the NHL can grow the game through those two mediums, through those two deals, um, through the mediums that those two companies have, um, the possibilities are endless to, to grow the game to from a league that's been trying to grow it to a younger generation for, for some time now. For people like us that have been lifelong fans of it, it's different. But um, for you, you've probably been paying attention to the Hurricanes preseason action more so than a lot of other people. Um, what what have you seen that's either concerning or promising? Okay, I'll start with the hmm, which one? I'll start with the concerning has been the um, and I and I knew this was going to happen when when everything the way it unfolded in the offseason was just kind of the transition from the duo or I guess you could say trio of Peter Morazic, James Reimer and Nadelkovich to uh, Frederick, Freddie, Frederick, whatever the guy's first name is, Anderson. And uh, however you rent Rantana, Rantana, however you say his last name. Um, and then that transition is going to be difficult. And I've already had multiple hurricane fan friends of mine say, Oh, well, they're, their goaltending's worse. So I'm like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, okay, so you guys wanted to pay Nadelkovich that a big deal, but the guy only played 29 games. He, as much as I would like him to still be here, he was not worth the money that you guys, that those particular friends wanted to give him. So, I mean, they, and then Detroit was willing to give it to him. Um, and then you had the whole thing with, uh, one of I won't I won't go into the name, but one of the certain uh, free agent signings that created a huge controversy here. Jersey number seventy-seven, maybe something around there. Um, and then I will be interested to see like how he how Rod Brennan can work with this particular individual. But we'll see what happens. He did assist on the second goal to Hurricane score in the preseason this year, but I, I digress. Um. And so those would be the two con concerning factors. And then something I'm encouraged of, encouraged, delighted to see really, is the um, 
development of the Hurricanes come back with pretty much their entire core of Taravine and Aho, Svechnikov, uh, Jordan Stahl, Martin Nook, whatever, whoever else, which is their core that's led them the last few years. They had, um, then they've added a couple pieces. Derek Steffen, who is going to be a good depth sign. I think I, I told I think I told you about that when you signed him. How how I oh yeah, you were super excited about that. Rightfully so. It's going to be it's going to prove to be a big time move. And then I think one thing that I'm interested about is they there's a player that they got from Montreal um, who it, it was admittedly just supposed to be a prank in Montreal was supposed to sign him, but we got him anyway, so I'm fine with it. Um, I cannot pronounce the dude's last name. I'm not going to try. Um, Jesper Kat Katiemi, Kat Kat uh, Kat Katiemi. Uh, say his name. He's good, and they got him on the offer sheet. Exactly. And I've I've seen a lot of people, or I've read a lot of people saying, "Oh, well, he didn't do much in Montreal." Yada yada yada. And I'm like because Montreal didn't use him correctly. The guy was the third overall pick in the same draft that Andrei Svechnikov was the second overall pick. So you get back-to-back two and three overall picks. The guy can play hockey. Montreal just didn't know how to use him from what I've seen. It's a guy that has a lot of speed, that has a lot of skill. And yes, for a team that made the Stanley Cup final last year, he didn't make as much of an impact because his speed and skill weren't on display because Montreal... And Tampa both played a lot like a St. Louis or a Washington of years past where they were overly physical and, and just grinded teams to the bone. Whereas if you're Carolina, your mentality of Rod Brindamore is to mix the two of those things, is to wear teams down, but also you've got the speed and the skill guys to just boat race people. Exactly. And I'm glad you brought up Rod Brindamore because one other thing I do want to mention was um, it's – this preseason compared to many others has been important for the hurricanes just granted the amount of roster turn- turnover that they had that they've had exactly meaning the two the three goalies that left the two they bought in the amount of support players that left and that they bought in so they have to kind of get those get that chemistry flowing with um uh with the established guys versus the guys who are coming in and it's all just a giant It'll be interesting what happens. And uh, the guy from Montreal, the guy whose last name starts with a K, um, he actually scored the first preseason goal for the Hurricanes. Granted, it was a 3-1 win against Tampa, but still it's interesting to see. Um, and then last thing, last one other player I want to touch on is really quick is just a, uh, a player they drafted two, in 2020, uh, Seth Jarvis. He's been a – he's just been a really – you can tell he's close, if not there, to ready to hop to the NHL level and play with, uh, and play and play at the NHL level with just his speed, the smarts that he's had, his ability to pass the puck, and everything. Rod Brindamore has even come out and said that he's going to be a good player, and I think Rod Brindamore, of all people, would know how to evaluate talent. If there's anybody that knows how to evaluate talent, you said it. It's Rod Brindamore. Um, Anything you've seen in particular from the goaltenders uh, this preseason? Granted, the turnover at that position specifically that uh, that you've liked or not liked. Um, I'd have to say 
this uh, uh, Ratana Ratnan, however you say his name, um, he's kind of been. He hasn't been the best. Granted, he was in net when they lost uh, eight to five to Tampa a couple nights, a few nights ago. Um, when he let in, I think five third period goals. But I've said this in other conversations I've had is that the guy has. I think he'll be a lot better when it comes time to have actual NHL level defensive players in one of the top defensive league or one of the top defensive cores in the league protecting him because I mean, during the preseason, you have guys who are trying to make either trying to make the roster or guys who are trying to, that just came in. So you're not going to have that a player like a Jacob Slavin, a Brett Pesci, uh, formerly a Dougie Hamilton, uh, that kind those kind of players in front of him. And you're going to let in some goals. Yeah, absolutely. But you still got, and and I feel like when you talk about the D'Angelo signing, it's not a, okay, a, what have you done lately outside of, or off the, off the ice? It's a, okay, we lost Dougie Hamilton. We got to, we got to bring somebody in here, right? It's not a, what have you done? Or it, it, nobody's concerned with who you voted for or what your views are, yada, yada, so on and so forth. It's a, can you win for me? Can you help me win? And Tony D'Angelo, as much flack as he's gotten, he's underperformed um, a lot of the time uh, in New York, but he's got a fresh start here. And uh, he's got a chance to, to make an impact here. And I think Rod Brindamore knows how to get the best out of guys. And you know, the locker room stuff that went on with Tony D'Angelo, again, that also goes out the window now. Rod Brindamore's only mindset is, okay, can you help me win? I think the answer is yes. Yeah, and I agree. And even if he doesn't necessarily... Uh, he's not necessarily the equivalent of Dougie Hamilton, which there's no way he will be given the amount of offense that Dougie contributed on the power play and five on five and whatever, with the amount of shots that he got on net and whatever. Um, you, he did Brindamore or the Kirkins, I should say Brindamore didn't do it alone, but he bought in Ian Cole and uh, traded for Ethan bear for, I believe, yeah, Warren Fogle. So, I mean, that they have the depth of defense. So if they need to take D'Angelo and just maybe have him, sit on sit out a game or two to kind of catch up to what the hurricanes are trying to do defensively, which is play staunch defense, but also contribute on the offensive, on the offensive side. You can do that because Ian Cole, I think he was a two time. He's won a Stanley cup with Pittsburgh. And then uh, Ethan bear, I think is he's a young guy, but he knows how to play defense. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, when we look at where this team is across the board, this is a team that's going to be extremely, extremely competitive, I think, going forward. And when you look at how the season starts, you know, you've gotten a better look at their schedule than I have. Uh, This first week is going to be a good test right out of the gate. Oh, yeah. I mean, you start with the – 
let's see. Yeah, you start with the Islanders on Thursday, which that's all, that those games are either always cl- those are always hard physical games that you have um, for for both teams, with the exception of the Hurricanes sweeping them in the playoffs a few years ago. These games have always been close, and then you have Nashville, which after last year's playoffs, I can't see how that's not going to be a close game. And then the third game is the the next three games are against Montreal, which we'll see how that goes. Uh, Toronto and Columbus. So those are going to be games that the Hurricanes could can definitely win, but they're going to be games that are not going to, they may not be able to get their, their speed, their, um, they're not gonna be able to get their speed. They're not gonna be able to like play their tempo game, but they're gonna be contests that the Hurricanes are gonna need to win if they want to take that next step forward to develop as the season goes on. Yeah, I mean, you you said it right out of the gate. You got the New York Islanders defending. Uh, we'll call it, even though it wasn't technically a conference runner-up, Eastern Conference runner-up. Um, you've got them on on Thursday night, my birthday. Uh, no stranger. Or no coincidence there, I don't think. Uh, and then, of course, you've got, you've got at the yes at the Predators um, on that Saturday night, next Saturday night. So, lot to look forward to there. Uh, important games around the league uh, this coming week: Tuesday night, opening night on ESPN. Penguins, Lightning, banner raising in Tampa against Sidney Crosby and the Pens. It's a seven thirty puck drop again on ESPN for the first time. Since 2005, uh, when the uh, Tampa Bay-Calgary Stanley Cup Final happened. Um, that was the last time ESPN or ABC had a game, so going to be fun to see. We've already gotten a preview of what TNT's studio set will look like, what their graphics will look like. Um, I will say TNT looks like they have gone very hockey-centric with their packages. The studio set looks great. Uh, the, 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 the personalities they've got. Uh, they got the Mike Pereira of hockey on there as an officiating expert. I mean, Rick Tockett talking about cross-checking on that preseason game. Hilarious stuff. Him and Andrew Carter in the studio going to be great. Again, Wayne Gretzky will be on there as well. I mean, good God. I mean, it's Wayne Gretzky, okay? Um, Kraken Golden Knights wraps up that uh, ESPN doubleheader. The Kraken's debut, uh, but it's on the road at Vegas. The last two expansion teams uh, will face off there. Like TNT has NBA games on Thursday, they'll have NHL games pretty much every Wednesday night. Um, and they'll have Rangers caps, uh, 7.30 Wednesday night, the 13th, uh, and Blackhawks avalanche uh, following that at 10 o'clock. And then the rest of the league uh, gets going Thursday and Friday night. That'll do it for us here this week on The Score for Brett, for Christian Emery. And Alex Wober, our producer, Desmond Johnson. Brett Wiseman saying so long. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Uh, a lot of fun to be had uh, in sports this weekend and in the coming week. We'll see you all next week.